Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by CounterPoint, publishers of The Disaster Tourist by Yoon Koan. A fast-paced echo thriller with a fierce feminist sensibility, The Disaster Tourist introduces a fresh new voice that engages with the global dialogue around climate activism, dark tourism, and the Me Too movement. Yona is a top representative for Jungle, a cutting-edge travel agency that specializes in tourism to destinations devastated by disaster and climate change. At least she was, until she found herself at the mercy of a predatory colleague. Now on the verge of losing her job, she is given a proposition. Take a paid vacation to the island of Moy and pose as a tourist to assess its profitability. When she uncovers a plan to fabricate an extravagant catastrophe, she must choose. Prioritize the callous company to whom she has dedicated her life or embrace a fresh start in a powerful new position. Refinery29 calls the disaster tourist, quote, a mordantly witty novel that reads like a highly literary, ultra-incisive thriller. So if you're looking for an elevated end-of-summer beach read, don't miss The Disaster Tourist. On sale now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, how you doing? Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. I have Sabrina Ora Mark on the program today. She has a story collection out from uh, Dorothy. It is called Wild Milk. And it is uh, one of these collections that got incredibly effusive, rave reviews. And I was supposed to have Sabrina on this program a while back. She was supposed to be here in person. She actually landed in Los Angeles with the intention of coming over. But uh, sadly, her grandmother passed away that same day. So she had to basically cancel all of her plans and turn around and fly back home. Uh, totally understandable, obviously. But now that I am in the midst of this phase of the show where I'm doing remote interviews, it occurred to me that I should reach out to her to reschedule because previously we were going to reschedule the next time she was out in Los Angeles. So Sabrina Ora, Mark, and I coming up in conversation momentarily. I do have some mail from a, a listener named Christine. She writes, Hi, Brad. I was listening to your interview with Jean Kyung Frazier this evening when you said that you want to know where people are listening from. So hi from the small rural town 
of Westport, Ontario, Canada. Population 500. I love your podcast. I listen to it when I run. The only way I can exercise is if I have a reward system in place. Listening to other people is my reward. My husband and I own a small book and record store. One of my customers recommended your show to me about a year ago, and I've been listening ever since. Thanks from a fan out in the middle of nowhere. All the best, Christine. So along with her email, Christine sent me a photo from, I think, her her route that she jogs up there in Canada. And I love this. I, I don't know why this gets me so excited, but I thought I would mention it uh, to everybody listening that if you want to uh, send me photos of where you're listening to the show, <laughs> that would make me happy. Uh, can we entertain ourselves with this? Is this possible? What I'm thinking is that you could tag the show on Twitter at other PPL, or you can tag the show on Instagram at other podcast. And we can all use the hashtag, uh, like hashtag where I'm listening. Does that make sense? Anyway, uh, Christine, I appreciate it. It's lovely to hear from you and to see where you're listening from. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company, publisher of the memoir, This is the Night Our House Will Catch Fire, by Nick Flynn. It's a darkly beautiful, mesmerizing work from the author of Another Bullshit Night in Suck City. This is the Night Our House Will Catch Fire is a breathtaking work of spare lyricism and astonishing insights that recounts Nick Flynn's 1960s childhood and his attempts to understand his mother, a loving woman, at times destructive, who ultimately committed suicide. This is a rare book that deals openly with marriage and childhood trauma and confronts some of our deepest ethical dilemmas. This is the night our house will catch fire. The new memoir by Nick Flynn, available now from W.W. Norton and Company. So my email address, if you would like to write to me, is letters at otherppl.com. I forgot to mention that. Sabrina Ora Mark is my guest today. Her story collection, Wild Milk, is available now from the Dorothy Project. Just a great time meeting her, finally. I mean, we had exchanged some emails or text messages back in the day when she was supposed to come over, but it was really great to get to talk with her and to learn a little bit about her life and work and where she's from and what she's up to, and I think you're going to enjoy hearing from her. So without any further ado, this is Sabrina Aura Mark and her story collection one more time is called Wild Milk. You're probably hearing some kind of like mishmash of Brooklyn and Georgia, which might end up being Philly. That might be it. You know, yeah. it's interesting that you say that because my parents are Southerners. They were born and raised in Louisiana and have lived in basically every region of the country. Well, not every region, but I've lived in multiple regions of the country with the exclusion of the East Coast and, and the Northeast, and people often think they're from New York. Oh, that's funny. Right. So there must be some kind of, it's like mixing colors, you know, like if you get, if you uh, mix, my my boys know this better than I do, but if, what is it, if you mix orange and purple, you get red? Is that what it is? No, that's not right. But if you mix... <laughs> It's like I want to say if you mix uh, like yellow and blue, you get green. Am I crazy? I used to know this. We should know this. See, I, I don't, 
This is the, well. Actually, we will know this by the. I mean, we're we're deep in homeschooling here, so we're we're going back to the beginning. Um, my boys know it like cold, every single color, and I've I at one point must have known it, and I've forgotten everything. So yeah, I uh, I was just talking to my wife before we got on the uh, got on the call, and she was like talking to me about some. It was like a mom whose daughter was supposed to go to school with our daughter. But then at the last minute, she's like, actually, I'm moving to Iceland for the next two years. And it was just like, I felt like the kid at the orphanage, you know, watching some other kid get adopted. Like, no, like that's that sounds so good to me. Moving to Iceland and just being like removed from chaos and living on like a, I don't know, like taking like hot, like uh, natural, like mineral spring baths or something. <laughs> <I don't know>. Yeah. <laughs> I we we know a family who um, bought a Winnebago, rented out their house, um, and they have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, and they just all got into the Winnebago, and they're going to be living in the Winnebago for a year, driving all over the country. You know, it's not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea. Yeah. The only thing I like where I where I take issue with the entire RV approach is the bathroom situation. Like I've been in RVs. I've gone on. I mean, again, I was in college when we did this, so we weren't exactly at the height of our powers uh, <laughs> in terms of like intellect and cleanliness, but it was disgusting. Like, I just don't know how you keep those oh, things God. clean. Well, I mean, my impulse is the opposite impulse, which is basically to like hide my entire family in a piano and just stay there until and stay as still as and quiet as possible until everything is okay again. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to do. Like I, I go back and forth. I've been doing a lot of browsing around online at like long-term rentals in beautiful places. Not that it could actually happen a lot of the time, but it doesn't stop me from looking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know it's hard. It's just, it's, it's, it's crazy right now. I actually drove, we drove from Georgia to, um, New York. My, my, my parents are in New York, my mother, my stepfather and, um, my sister. And I had, um, my sister's like in the middle of a health crisis. And so I had, we drove to New York, um, to help out and just going through, I mean, it's only five, six states, like 15 hours of driving. But um, even that, just just the fact that like we got in the car and drove and drove and drove, like gave us all a certain amount of peace, I think. Um, and it felt relatively safe, actually. Um, like we masked up and I'm sure nobody in New York was happy to see my Georgia license plates, though. Uh Whatever New York, it's not like New York is some sort of uh, safe zone. I mean, that place has got a higher concentration of cases than anywhere, right? True. Uh, the, I think it's gotten. I think things are much better there now. I think, but who knows? I mean, who knows day to day? So, can I ask you some some logistical questions about that yes. road trip? Yes. Do you, like, how do you go to the bathroom on the road? Like, do you do you just go into the gas station and, and mask up and 
hope for the best? We masked up. We got, um, we went, we stopped at, um, so instead of stopping at gas stations, we stopped at rest stops and, um, the, it's just much airier. And it seemed like in a lot of the rest, a friend of mine told me to do this. She was like, just stop at the rest stops. They're just bigger there. We, we got to one rest stop and my, my seven year old looked around and he was like, this is so beautiful. <laughs> I was like, which part? Which part? He's like, it's just beautiful. It's like a museum. It's like a museum in here. And it was just very like, you know, I mean, there was not, there was, it was just a big kind of echoey space with bathrooms, which I guess to him is like a museum. Um, yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, so we did that and, um, and then we packed food. So we didn't buy any food along the way and we just drove all the way through. We didn't, we didn't stay over anywhere. Um, so yeah. May I ask, is your sister doing okay? Um, uh, she is, um, she, um, was, uh, diagnosed in June with Hodgkin's. Um, so she's t- 21. So she's 25 years younger than I am. Um, and so, and she, um, she is right now, um, in her, she, let's see, she's on her fourth chemo treatment. So, It'll be, yeah, it's going to be a road. Um, Hopefully what we're praying for is that it's six months and then it's over. That's what we're praying for right now. Cause it's staged there. They staged it at like two B. So, um, you know, and so, yeah. Well, I will, I will pray as well. That's a, you know, that's a rough, that's a rough one. And I hope that it, uh, it all goes well. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, so I want to ask you, like you said, you grew up in Brooklyn. Yeah, I grew up in Brooklyn. Yeah. Where, but whereabouts? In Flatbush. Um, we, I, um, I grew up in a pretty Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. I went to Yeshiva in, in, in Brooklyn Um, and then we moved, um, when I was in seventh grade into Manhattan and then I went to, um, like a Jewish day school in, in Manhattan. Um, but yeah, I I was a Brooklyn kid. Are you, is your family Orthodox? We, uh, we were brought up modern Orthodox. Um, and you know, right now I would consider myself much more on the conservative end of things. Um, but yeah, no, we were, we were brought up Orthodox, but my, when my parents, my parents split up when I was, um, when I, I was in like fifth grade or sixth grade or something. And so that was why we ended up moving into Manhattan. Cause we lived in this very like, you know, religious neighborhood where the idea of parents getting a divorce was like the worst thing on earth. So we moved into Manhattan where everybody was divorced um, and um, continued on there. Uh, So and 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 as we once we moved into Manhattan, I think that like really uh, I mean, we stayed we stayed um, 
orthodox, but not as not as religious, I would say. Um, what does so. it mean to be orthodox? Like I like I see orthodox uh, Jewish like neighborhoods in Los Angeles and like the men are in like the wool suits and the hats and the beards. And like, is that what we're talking about? Oh, well, that's more like the Hasidic Jews and the Lubavitch Jews. I mean, that's like another level. That's a whole oh, right. level. I, we weren't at that level. I mean, I did live in Borough Park for a little while where, I mean, it's, it's um, mostly Hasidic Jews. And that's where, um, you know, um, the rules are, I mean, you're not even really supposed to read secular books. And I mean, the modern Orthodox world is much more um, uh, malleable. Like there's there's much more room to to um, to breathe in the secular world. And like the Hasidic world is like where you see the hats and the payas and like all of that. That's that's a much more closed um uh, community. Got it. And so did you growing up, were you like observing the Sabbath and like, no, yes, like, like, like no machines on Saturday or is no that what machines. it is? Yeah. Like no electricity on Saturday and, um, you know, um, yeah, observing, um, Shabbat and then, um, keeping all the holidays and, um, we had to wear, like we had to wear skirts, like long skirts to school and like keep your arms covered, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, but, but once we moved into a Jewish day school in Manhattan, again, like it was just, it just became like much more, um, breathable, I guess. Um, but we, I studied half the day. I studied, um, Torah and the Talmud and, um, I learned, you know, we studied Hebrew. And so half of the day was all like, um, religious subjects. And then half of the day was secular subjects. Got it. Got it. And where in Manhattan were you living? So my dad lived um, in Greenwich Village and um, right by NYU, right across the street from Tisch. And then my mother lives on the Upper West Side and they're still both there. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, like, do you like nowadays, like, have you been like, do you go to Israel? Have you been uh, and like, do you still observe? Yeah, I mean, we do, we're definitely, I mean, we do Shabbat, but we don't, I don't keep it like I used to. Um, and um, we do all the high holidays. Um, so like Yom Kippur and um, Rosh Hashanah, like those are the high holidays. And then we always do, you know, Passover. I usually um, um, go to one of my par- parents um, and we did go to, we actually went to Israel a few years ago. And, um, I mean, we're, we're a multiracial family. My husband's black, you know, um, my kids are black. We, um, and I was, you know, we, we stayed in Jerusalem and so we're an unusual looking family. And, um, I guess at least let's say for Jerusalem and, I felt so comfortable there in a way that as a younger person going to Israel, I 
didn't. Um, it felt like very welcoming. We had like no issues at all. I mean, there was a point where I turned to my husband and I was like, I want like, we need to move like we should just move here. Um, and I don't think we ever could. But um, I have family who lives there. Um, and, but as, yeah, a, as, a, as a Jewish person, you you could, though, right? You could just say, I want I want yes. citizenship in Israel and you could go. Totally. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then like my, uh, yeah. Um, and, and, um, we all, yeah, we all could easily just get citizenship. I don't know about right now. <laughs> um, right now, I mean, Israel's not in good shape right now either. So I don't know what the flying back and forth anyway. I don't, I don't even know if we could even get to Israel right now. Um, so I think Poland would have us, but I was looking could, to like different international flights, like where we could actually go. And I, you know. Oh, I was going to say, you don't have, do you have family roots in Poland? Or is no, it just well, like. No, we, uh, no, I have Eastern European roots, but no, not, not in Poland. Um, um, and I don't really want to go. I don't think I really want to go to Poland right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I haven't heard, I haven't heard a lot of people talking about it, but. Right. Knows? My dream vacation in Poland, you know, yeah. Well, I, uh, I've been to Israel and, uh, it's, it's a lovely place. I did feel like there is a heightened level of like, at least to some degree in the back of your mind, you're like, wow, this is a, maybe a more dangerous place to be. I don't know. Maybe that's overstating it, but it, don't you feel like there's just like maybe a little bit higher stakes when you're there just because it's right there geographically and, uh, in this spot where there's a, a lot of like border to border tension, um, Yes. And I'll tell you, though, I actually felt I mean, and that was part of it. I felt safer there than I've been feeling in Georgia. Um, and so that was part of it ever since I think um, I did. I kept I yeah, I kept saying to my husband, like, I, I definitely feel safer here than I feel living in Georgia. Um, and I it was very bizarre because all the times before that I had gone to Israel, I had felt like, you know, you're really moving around a country that is in like, you know, perpetual war. Um, and I just, I guess the, after Trump was elected, now we're kind of moving around a country here that it feels like it's in perpetual war. Um, or, you know, a kind of civil war. And then, um, and so there was something like shockingly, like relatively peaceful about Israel. Um, so yeah, it was, it was very bizarre. It's a beautiful place. And the food's really good. Yeah. The, the food's good. And I also got to say the people are beautiful. Like I just remember walking, I was walking around Tel Aviv and I was just like, wow, everyone's hot. Everybody is hot. Everybody is hot. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so who knew? But yeah. I, I've also been reading a lot of Philip Roth, like uh, lately, um, just like incidentally. And so I feel I've been joking with my friends. I was like, I think I'm Jewish now. Like I've read like you know seven Philip Roth books. Right. I like, think I'm by done. the seventh, <laughs> right by the seventh Philip Roth book, you get you get to be Jewish. I think that's <laughs> it's either the sixth or the seventh. I'm not sure. Uh, so are you? And you said you're living in you live in Athens, Georgia. I live in Athens, Georgia. My my husband teaches at the University of Georgia, so that's why we've been here. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. 
And it's a great town. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a college town and it's this little, you know, it's a little oasis. Like it, um, it's a little dot of blue surrounded by a, a sea of red. And I, it, I, well, and we have Atlanta, um, you know, we're about like an hour and a half from Atlanta, but I never, we never really go into Atlanta. Um, but it's a good town. I mean, it's gritty in a way that, um, have you ever been to Athens, Georgia? I haven't. One of my closest friends grew up there, but I have not spent, I haven't spent much time in Georgia period. I've kind of been through Atlanta yeah. briefly, but that's about it. Yeah. I mean, Athens is like, I feel in certain ways, it's one of those last places where you can really like live and thrive as an artist. Like there are a lot of musicians here. There are a lot of visual artists. I mean, you have the university that kind of like holds the economy in place um, and then football, I guess. So I'm go dogs. Right. It's more the football that holds (laughs) the economy in place that is um, shrouded by the university. Um, Isn't that? But can I stop you there? Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. I mean. There's, I mean, and I'm wondering what's going to happen this year because um, if there's no football, I don't, I'm almost scared that people are just going to go like mad in the streets. Like, I don't even know, uh, I don't even know what's going to, what's going to happen. I mean, it is a religion here to the point where I was just going to say, I was like, people think the South is like the Christian South and everybody's Christian. That's not it. Everybody's football. Football is the true religion of the South. Football is college the true football. religion of the South. I mean, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I, I mean, I'll, I'll turn, you know, I'll, I'll, um, I'll turn to my husband and I'll be like, is it a, fo- is it a game day this week? Is there a game this? And I like, won't leave the house if it's, if there's a game. Um, and we haven't even been to my husband. I mean, he watches football. I don't, I, you know, but we've never been to a game here because I just the crowd situation is not something that I can deal with (laughs) what just everybody everybody's just hammered and I can't I just can't be around yeah like everybody with the red cups you know the red plastic cups um Uh and the and and just I don't get it. I really don't get it. I don't mean to be, I don't even mean to be snobby about it. Like I just don't get the, I I don't, I've never for anything really had the desire to be in a crowd like that um, ever, like all cheering for the same thing. It just kind of terrifies me. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, maybe, maybe what you need to do is just like fully embrace it. Like go to one game and just get shit faced <laughs> and pa- like paint your face and, you know, like wear red and just do the whole thing and see how it goes. Oh, my God. Well, my brother went to University of Michigan and he would go to the the games and he would paint his face and everything. And he once got thrown out of a game and I was like, why did why? And he's like, I don't know. We were just like throwing marshmallows. It wasn't a big deal. Like we were just throwing marshmallows. But then later on, I came to find out, I think he he just he fessed up at the end that he had. It wasn't that they were throwing marshmallows. It was that they were putting nickels into marshmallows, lighting them on fire and throwing them. I was like, well, that's kind of. (laughs) (laughs) 
When I was in uh, when I was in college in Boulder, my friends and I ate ecstasy and went to a night football game, and it was like the most obnoxious thing ever. Like it was just the, the combination of the two is uh, completely absurd. And I remember like all of us were like hugging when we scored a touchdown. <laughs> and, like, was, like, it was uh, yeah, that was like my that's my key football memory from college was like basically being on like a rave party drug at a game like sitting in the end zone seats oh, that's funny that's really funny yeah. yeah we didn't i mean i went to i went to an all women i went to barnard so there was you know um we didn't and i don't even i didn't even know that columbia had a football team so there was no football <laughs> i mean i think they have a football team but we didn't i I mean, I spent my entire four years of college not knowing there was a football team even. So wait, uh, like, forgive me. I'm, I'm like, I should probably know this, but Barnard College is like the women's college attached to Columbia. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Barnard College is the women's college attached to Columbia. Yeah. So it's right across the street. So there's like Columbia University and then there's Barnard College, Columbia College, Teachers College, um, JTS, like all these other colleges inside of the umbrella of Columbia University. Oh, okay. Yeah. But Columbia is co-ed. Like it's, and then Barnard is just all women. Yeah. Columbia is co-ed and then Barnard's all women. Yeah. Okay. So you, okay. So you grew up in New York, you go to college in New York. Yeah. Uh, And then were you writerly from a young age? I was very writerly from, I very much just wanted desperately to be a writer. Yeah. Um, and I was very serious about it in college. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I took like every single writing workshop I could possibly take. Um, and it was, I've always felt like it, I mean, I wasn't good. I was not good at all. Um, but I just wanted it so badly. Like I could, like my, my teeth would hurt from like wanting to figure out how to write. Um, and I got lucky. Like I studied, I, I mean, I got to study with, um, Kenneth Koch was like pretty, was like my first poetry teacher. Um, and in order to get into his workshop, um, you had to write a, a ballad Um, and I didn't even know really what a ballad was or, um, like how to write an iambic, um, pentameter or, you know, and so I like quickly just taught myself how to do these things so I could get into his workshop. And, um, and then like at one point he had us like speak in iambic pentameter during the workshop and like, um, as a way to just like learn it through terror and shame as quickly as possible. But he was, he was a wonder. I mean, he was really, he taught, um, his, his workshops were great because they were all imitation. And so he would just like give us John Donne poems and be like, write a poem that could like pass for a John Donne poem or write a Shakespeare sonnet. Or so I had like a really formal, like, groundwork, which I really, um, I really just, I don't know, I I really appreciate that. So and I, and Claudia Rankin was a professor of mine at Barnard and um, Marilyn Hacker, 
I studied with Marilyn Hacker. And um, so I had like a good, um, there were, there were, you know, like real writers that I could really learn from. Um, and I didn't even, you know, know that you could, that real writers like were actually alive until I, until I got to college, um, or that I could actually study with them or that they could, they would actually like read anything that I would ever write. So it was, you know, it was good. Like I am very grateful for those years. Yeah, that sounds good. That sounds like way better than my, than my, like my education was a lot more haphazard than that. Like not nearly as formal. Yeah. Did you take workshops in in college? In graduate school. In grad, yeah. Uh, I was such a mess of a student as an undergraduate. Like I can't even believe I got through much. <laughs> like I got through with good grades too. Like I don't even, I barely was there. It felt like, you know, I was just kind of hang out with my friends and you know school was not the priority but then in graduate school I got down to business yeah yeah I mean I think that there are these like there are these moments where like you're ready or you're just not ready you know I mean I even feel now sometimes like I'll read a book and just like not be ready for it and then come back to it two like two years later and think like what was wrong with me? Like, how did I not just like fall in love immediately with this book? Um, so, which I'm great. I'm grateful for. At least, like that means like my brain is is you know um, not just in some kind of like stagnant state. You know, um, so I, I've had that happen too, and I feel like it's it's a strange feeling. To, like and it could work in the opposite direction too, where you read a book and love it, and then you pick it up two years later, and you're like, "What was I thinking? This is not that good." Right, this is not right, exactly. <laughs> so timing matters. I think timing matters hugely, and you got to be—I don't know—the stars sort of have to align. You have to be ready to lock in and do the work, and I think you have to, like you said, having exposure to people who can really teach you and can serve as a model. That doesn't hurt. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny also now because I'm like, I'm so obsessed with this idea that we're as writers, like writing into like writing right now. I don't know if, if you feel this way or if you felt this way, like just like in the last few months, but, um, I just described it as like having this feeling like we're writing on, on, on like a melting iceberg or something. Like there's a sense of, um, uh, like we're in this really weird time where language somehow is like just in, in some kind of like crisis, like rebirth state. I don't even know what, um, but I feel like the materials that I'm used to working with all the time, like just the, the words themselves, like feel weird to me. Um, and I keep asking my students, I'm like, is there a way to like, I mean, I know there's no equation for this, you know, but like, um, is there some, like what is happening right now to language? I just, you know, like what time are we in and like, what does it even mean to be like reading something right now or writing something right now when everything just feels like it's in this like 
really intense shift. Um, but there's also like, it's, it feels kind of like doomsday-ish, but it also feels like a kind of freedom also, you know, like where like you're writing into this new future um, and you don't know like why you're writing it or for who you're, you know, like it, it's kind of impossible to know like what, what any, the idea of a goal has kind of like dissipated. Um, I don't know if you feel that way too. <laughs> I know I do. And I think like, as you were talking, like the word fatalism was coming up in my brain and I was thinking also, I guess like, like to me, this is just me reflecting on recent writing experiences. It was just like, whatever you have to say, say it like who, who cares? And also like time is short. That was kind of the emotional vibe, which I guess should always be the case, but it feels heightened or something. It's like, you know, you say writing on an iceberg that resonates and you know, why hold back? And also why work on anything that doesn't feel like life or death to you, you know, not to be melodramatic, but just, it should really, it should really matter. And I struggle a little bit because I'm thinking about, you know, the word career, uh, you know, as a lot of writers, I think do like how to sustain this. And I think sometimes if you're a fiction writer, um, you know, you're trying to work or, or I guess nonfiction, uh, you're trying to work and produce books regularly. And to do that, you might have to sometimes, I think, sort of force it a bit or move yourself in the direction of some imaginative project that's fun, but maybe the stakes aren't the way that I was describing earlier. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm making this make sense, but it's it's a struggle for me to think about how to keep working and to sustain that level of intensity because to just write and not have the stakes be high like that, oh, it doesn't really interest me that much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I feel you on that. I mean, but, and I also think like, that too is a kind of strange freedom. Like even though it's a pre- there's the pressure, there's also the feeling of like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say this. Like I'm, I just have to, I also feel like when I hit 42, <laughs> I was like, screw it. I'm just saying it. I'm sorry. Like if anybody is like going to be brokenhearted by it, like everybody will live. It's, it's, it'll be okay. Um, and I think like there was something that I was afraid of, like in my twenties and thirties that I'm just like no longer afraid of even before like the pandemic. And, um, I, I don't know. I just got much braver, I think in my writing. Um, well, I think you can feel, I, 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 I feel that. And I think like part of it has to do with just the time, like the actuarial nature of being in your forties. I mean, it sounds sort of cliche, but I def, I just turned 45 and I'm like, okay, like that went fast. Like the next 45, if I ha if I'm lucky enough to have them are going to go really fast. So get to it, get you to know, it. like <laughs> who cares? Like it's all going to be gone in a blank. You know what? You might as well just say what you need to say. Yeah. 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 I know. I, I, um, well, happy birthday. When was your birthday? August 1st. Oh, so that was, oh, happy birthday. I, I, um, we're, we're almost, um, I'm also, I just turned 45 in June. 
I think at 45. Yeah, 45. So you're older than I am. I am older than you. <laughs> <laughs> you're so old, man. I'm so old. I'm just, yeah, I'm very... <laughs> Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, I want to ask you about your fiction. And yeah. I, I just talked to an author named Hillary Leichter, who incidentally is a, a Jewish girl from the New York area. Ah, um, yeah. But she I wrote love, a... yeah. Um, You're familiar with her? Temporary, right? Yeah, I love her book. Okay, okay, interesting. Because, you know, I I don't mean to make too close of a comparison because obviously your work is distinct, but I I just think that there is like a a kind of uh, like purely imaginative mode that you're both able to work in that I'm fascinated by and envious of. And I'm curious to know, I'm curious to know about how you do it. Like, that's what I, that's what I, that's how I feel in reading, uh, your work is like, I'm trying to like game it out in my head. Like, how is this done? It doesn't seem as maybe clear to me as more realist fiction might seem when I'm reading it, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, you know, for me, everything is about like just shifting ever so slightly off center. So like, um, so for example, um, I mean, I do have, I do have moments where, I mean, I do, my imagination will kind of like run wild, but it, 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 it feels like, um, uh, a kind of, um, a way for me to get through one minute like to to get through a particular moment so for example like I was at there was a point where I was going to so many kids birthday parties like my kids it was like a birthday party every like two or two birthday parties you know every weekends where you just and and my kids were little where you you know you have to stay with them and um and like at first it seems sort of fun and then it just gets really strange and boring. And I remember I I was at um, this one kid's birthday and the parents played this game. Oh, sorry, the kid, the parents, the kids played this game where um, 
it, it was called like pass the parcel. I don't know if you know this game, but like they they wrap a present like a million times and then they pass the present around and around. And so and like each time the music stops, another kid has to like unwrap another layer and then unwrap another layer and unwrap another layer until like at finally like they unwrap the last layer and it's, you know, like a little like like, you know, a thing of candy or a plastic duck or something. And um, and I was standing there and I was like imagine if like this never ends this just like never like we're all forever like just in this birthday party and like the parents like grow older and older and die and like the kids get older and they just keep passing this present around and around and it was like it was really a way for me like I was just standing there being like I'm so bored that I had to like go into this place of like imagine if this game just like absolutely never ended and like everything was covered in dust and like and um you know and and I can't like and and there are times I mean I just like can't help myself sometimes where I'm like I need to I need to save I like I need to jump off this this ship and this is like the place that I jump you know this is this is this is how I survive um so there's that, like where I'll just like if you just change like the the smallest rule, like where everything is exactly the same, but for the fact that the kid's birthday party like never ends, just that one simple difference, like obviously everything changes. And so I'm really fascinated by that, like how you know the slightest tear um, can just change everything I mean and I there are times though right now where I feel like what small thing went wrong like what one like was there this one little tear where like we accidentally like all slipped into like the wrong timeline or something you know and and that and now that's that's our reality um are you talking so, about like the modern political context? The mo- yeah, just like the world, America as we as we as we are living it right now, like feels like the part where you say the kid, this kid's birthday party is like never gonna end. You know, like we we right. actually shifted into that that wrong the wrong timeline. So it is actually bizarre to like. There is something about like working in surrealism or like working in magical realism or or now where it almost feels like you're doubling up, you know, like you have reality, which feels surreal. So what do you do? You like write you write surreal on top of the surrealism like that's just too much. surreal. That's too much. Um, so. So I've been I've been thinking about that. I mean, I'm not quite sure how how we get around that. But um, um, there's this story that I've been thinking about just so often, just in the past few months called Dog Days by Judy Budnitz. Have you ever read that story? No. Uh-uh. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And um, um, I think it came, it came out like 15 years ago. Um. I, I think it's in her collection. Um, I'm not sure which collection of her stories it's in, but 
but it's it's basically um it's called dog days and it's it's you know it's basically about this family who's like who has to stay inside the house and you're not quite sure why but you know like it's not safe to go outside and like it 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 reads right now like something that is a little bit too close to the to the real that we're living but you know I was going to say I was going to say it feels like very covid it's very covid it's like it feels completely prophetic i mean it really really does there's a the there's a character there's a man dressed in a dog suit that keeps like coming to the house like wanting food um so we we haven't had that man come to our house yet but other than that you know we're it it does feel it does just yeah it it felt very prophetic to me and um as each day goes by i'm like oh we're getting like closer and closer like inside the store to being inside the story but i highly recommend it it's um yeah it's a beautiful story and so you have training from co- from your college days in poetry. Yeah, I um, I very much like started as a poet, and then I um, I got an MFA in poetry also. Um, and in my graduate program, it was very much like the poets are the poets, the fiction writers are the fiction writers. Like you know, um, where, did, where did you go to Iowa? Um, and so, yeah, so it was like very much like divided by genre. I know there are a lot of MFA programs that have fiction writers take poetry workshops and poetry writers take fiction workshops, but there was very much like you couldn't, you had to kind of stay in your, in your lane. Um, and what happened with me really was that I was writing these prose, I have two collections of prose poems and I was writing these prose poems and writing these prose poems. And then I had um, Noah, um, my my first son, and um, I didn't, I had, I, I just didn't have the kind of time to write like I used to. So when I wrote these prose poems, I would write them in like 15 hour blocks. Like I would just go into this kind of like hermetically sealed space and just write and write and write and write and write. So then after I had um, my son, I could write like three lines or four lines or, um, and so what happened was that like the box of the prose poem kept getting interrupted and like, became more porous I think and like more breath came in and then suddenly like they started turning into these stories um I was like wait a minute this isn't a poem this is a this is a story and I think just like motherhood forced me to let more of the world in like you can't I couldn't be as like sealed as I had always been you know like I I I couldn't be as like contained and like time was you know always kind of being you know interrupt you know my my any there time was just completely different like it was just sort of um, there was there was no no such thing as like a block of time anymore it was just sort of like these 
these ribbons of time, you know? So, um, uh, and so I started writing these stories. Um, and then, and then I started, um, and then it was almost as if like the stories, um, kind of broke open. And then I started writing essays. Like I started writing all this nonfiction. Um, but it was like this very organic process of like, um, it almost, it almost felt like a, like a boy, like growing out of his pajamas, you know, like the pajamas would like, like the, the poem tore and then like became a story. And then like the story tore again and became, became an essay. Um, so. Can I ask you, I want to ask you about time because you talked about time becoming ribbons, you know, like I, I can relate to that as a parent. I think a lot of us can relate to that, even if it's just like having to work a job or multiple jobs and trying to find time to write. But where I struggle is in getting myself into a place of concentration that is deep enough and, and slow and steady enough to actually be able to do the work. Like, do you have any tricks? Like what, or, or was it just like, you know, necessity is the mother of invention and you figured it out and just did the best you could in little chunks of time? Yeah. I mean, I did, it was, it was one of those, I think if I write every day, um, then I can access that space that you're talking about. Um, because what it, it used to be where I would sit down to write maybe like every third day, every fourth day. And then I could have my like, you know, three hours or whatever. It's like, get into that trance that you're talking about. Like I know the trance and you have to get, you have to get to the trance, but I think you get to the trance quicker if you write just even like 10 minutes a day. Like I was, I just heard um, Amy, Amy Bender has that new book, The Butterfly Lampshade, which I'm very excited to read. I haven't read it yet, but um, I just heard her talking about her process. And she, I think she had twins and she was like, I I interviewed her. I interviewed her right after she had had these twins. And she was telling me that she was telling me this story about writing in like 10 minute increments. Oh, right. So I must have heard it on your, okay. So I'm basically like quoting your, right. Yes. Okay. Um, right. And I thought, and I, I, I totally, I mean, I think that just, um, you know, um, exercising that muscle, um, every just every day I'm I I really do believe it makes all the difference and um and also like now I have I write a monthly column which I originally thought like no way can I do this I'm sorry like I cannot get out I cannot write this quickly there's no way that I can do this and it's been like the best thing for me on earth to just like know that I have to have something, um, monthly. Um, and it's really weird. And I love that it's monthly because like, I feel like, you know, there's, it, it, it is like echoing if like I start off and it, well, it's like, it feels as though it's echoing the moon in a lot of ways. Like I start off and I'm like, I have no idea where I am. Like there's like no light here at all. 
then I get into like a panic by like, you know, day 15 of the month. And then by the it's like the menstrual cycle. And then by the end of the month, like something like actually happens. Um, so uh, so that's been I mean, I'm good. I, I Deadlines are very good. Also, I mean, like if you can even like, I don't know, create your own like secret deadlines. I feel like that's always been I've, I've always worked very, like I'm, I've always worked very well with deadlines. Um, yeah, I think so. I think having accountability to somebody, even if yes. it's like, you know, if you th- if you're thinking of it in terms of your editor or your readers, uh, you know, they're expecting something. And if you don't, if you don't produce, then you're going to be disappointing someone like that's not always the worst thing in the world to have that kind of incentive structure. Right. I, yes, I, 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 I'm, I think the terror of disappointing, I, I have a wonderful editor um, um, and I just, I love her so much that, and I keep thinking like this, this next essay that I hand into her will like make her not, not love me anymore. And so I have to make sure, you know. <laughs> um, and this is at the, at the Paris Review or? This is at the Paris Review. Yeah. And her, her, um, not just Spiegelman's my editor. And she's just, I mean, she's like heaven on earth to work with. Um, so, yeah. Well, that's good too. If you have like an editor who you admire and really like respect and like, then yeah, you want to please that person. I think it's good to write kind of for the, the approval of one person. Like that, that kind of makes sense to me, like writing to somebody. I don't know if that's exactly how you do it, but it kind of narrows things down in a nice way. It gives like, takes some of the pressure off. Uh, you know, I don't know. I guess there's a, it's its own kind of pressure, but it's, it might be like healthier than trying to please everybody. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I, um, I think when I also love right now just having somebody read my work and say, like, this is not working, like, this is not good. Um, Whereas I feel like when when I was a younger writer, when I would hand something in, like, there would be this kind of, like, preciousness about it. And I'd walk around with it and be very happy with myself. And everything was so, you know, like, I couldn't believe I had written this this line, you know, and, and God forbid anybody should say to me, like something wasn't entirely working. And now I'm like, please tell me every place, like everything is broken. Like, it's just, it's a gift. Um, uh, and, and maybe it's like being out of that workshop land for a long time and like, you know, being the teacher. And it's just, it's nice to just have someone say like, you're trying to get away with something, you know, or like this just, you know, isn't um, landing. It's I, I really appreciate it. Um, it's so. not easy to find a great editor. And I, yeah. I've said this many times on this show before, but I think it, it always bears repeating that editing is its own skill set. It's its own like we, I know we all have to self-edit a bit as writers and you know great writers are usually great at editing themselves but even then to have somebody who is truly gifted at editing that's a lucky thing if you can find somebody to collaborate with in that way because inevitably you miss stuff like there's just yeah you know it, rare is the writer who can really work through an entire manuscript and find every blind spot yeah, yeah. I mean, and um, and I will say also, um, uh, 
my uh, Danielle Dutton at Dorothy Project, um, where um, they have published Wild's Milk. She is also heaven on earth. I mean, like work, she is so meticulous and um, it was just, it was incredible working with her too. So I felt really, really lucky about them taking Wild's Milk um, uh, and yeah, it felt like the perfect home and Danielle is just, she's, she's wonderful. I mean, she's, she's edited so many incredible books and, um, and they're like a really, I don't know, they're just, it just felt like a perfect home. So I don't think I would be, I, I know I'm not a great editor. Like I cannot imagine having like multiple manuscripts and having to kind of go through like just the level of thought yeah. that it inclo- that it involves to do it well. I mean, I'm just very impressed by people who can do that. Yeah. I think about, I, I, I don't, yeah, I think some of, um, I think it's really about like figuring out like how you can get into like how you can get inside the voice rather than like superimposing your own voice on top of the voice. Right. Like, so it does require like a certain amounts of ventriloquism, I think to be a good editor, like it, like you need a particular ear um, and like the ability to speak in multiple languages. Like if you're working with multiple writers, um, uh, and I think it's different from like, it's different from teaching writing. Um, you know, sometimes I'm afraid, like I'll say to my students, like I have these, you know, um, you, like I have these prejudices, like I have these, you know, I, I'm drawn to obviously like certain aesthetics and, um, and I'm going to like present you with like a lot of the things like only like I love and so um you know I always worry about like you know trying to make sure like I'm helping my students find find their own voices like you know find their own space to like work inside and not just like you know um I don't I don't want them to feel like they need to create these echoes you know, um, I think what you said about being able to speak multiple languages, like it gets close to it. Um, most yeah. people can't do that. I can't do that, you know, but I think like a really gifted editor can. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like the one who can wear many hats. Yeah. So what about, uh, influences? Like when you talk about I me, mean, you, you mentioned some of your, you know, influential, um, mentors and college professors and so on and so forth, but on the page, are there writers that you have really leaned on through the years that helped you kind of form your sensibility? Yeah, I mean, I'd say like probably one of my biggest influences is the writer Bruno Schultz, um, and the um, who wrote *The Strait of Crocodiles*. And um, it's when my when my first collection came out um, called the my first collection of poems came out called the babies. I got this review and it, and in the review it said like, Oh, she must sleep with Kafka and Bruno Schultz under her pillow. And I was like, I know who this 
Kafka fellow is, but like who's Bruno, who's Bruno Schultz. And then I was like, wait, Bruno Schultz, Bruno Schultz. I know that name. And I went to my bookshelf and I had Bruno Schultz on my bookshelf. And not only had I had Bruno Schultz on my bookshelf, but I had read every story and like copiously underlines, like, I don't know, like the entire book, there were like notes in it. And I had no memory of reading it. Like, I swear to you, I had no memory of reading it. Like it got into my bones somehow. And then like I reread it and I taught it and, um, and then, um, there's this documentary about Bruno Schultz, um, he had been um he was a he was from Drohobysh in, in Poland actually this goes back to like why I would actually want to go to Poland because there's um there's a gallery that's showing a bunch of his um art right now um but he had also so he had been a writer um but he had also he was also an artist and um he was killed during the Holocaust before he was killed. His, um, there was an SS officer who took this liking to him because he liked his drawings and he got Bruno Schultz to go to his son's house, to his, to, to his son's bedroom, um, and paint these fairy tale figures all over the bedroom. And he pretty much like, quote unquote, like kept Bruno Schultz alive, calling him like his Jew um, for um, because he wanted him to keep like, you know, um, painting and and creating these these fairy tale scenes in his son's um, bedroom. And he anyway, he ended up getting shot um, and who, who, Bruno Schultz? Bruno Schultz, Bruno Schultz, by an SS, another SS officer who had been in this like fight with the SS, SS officer who took this liking to Bruno Schultz. And so um, as, a, as an act of revenge, he killed Bruno Schultz. Um, so um, years and years later, these two um, filmmakers decide that they're going to start like looking for these frescoes of Bruno, uh, of, of Bruno Schultz. Um, and they, they realize that maybe um, they, 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 they end up um, finding the address of the SS officer. And now there's this like old woman who lives there, who's like half blind and she comes and she opens the door and these two filmmakers walk in. And from like within like five minutes of them being there, you can like look up and see these like fairy tale scenes peering out from behind whitewash. Um, it's like one of the most amazing documentaries I've ever seen. And like, it changed my whole way of thinking about writing and art and everything. Like it just blew my mind because I was like that moment where like the fairy tale scenes like emerge out, uh, emerge from, from behind the whitewash. And like, there's a sort of like total collision of the past and the present, but also like, 
you know, surrounded by the world of fairy tale, I was like, that's what I want to do as a writer. You know, like I want to figure out a way of just like having that all happen at once. Um, and I don't know, like Bruno Schultz is just, I mean, has been um, like near me, um, you know, from even before I could remember that he was that that his writing was near me. So I'd say, you know, he's one of like, by far my biggest influences and, um, and then Kafka, um, and Gertrude Stein. Um, Why Gertrude Stein? I Gertrude Stein, I, I, and this kind of goes back to this question of like, what's happening with language right now? I mean, I Tender Buttons also like is another book that just completely blew my mind. When when I used to teach and um, as an adjunct, like I would bring it to my undergraduates and they would all like hate me for bringing in Tender Buttons. But I, you know, I think about like Gertrude Stein, like as a Jewish lesbian living in Paris, like the, you know, um, she's like, on the precipice of two world wars um, and, and, um, and realizing somehow that like, you know, the word itself is, is kind of cracking open, you know, like I, I always think of like every word in tender buttons as being like this kind of like eggshell that you can like, you know, you crack open and like, the meaning spills out, but you still have like all these shells of words everywhere. And then she just ar- arranges the words as these like shards. Um, and that too, like to sort of be writing in that space where like language is in this state of, I don't know, just almost like barely knowing itself um, just fascinates me. I feel like that's about as good of an explanation of influences as I've heard maybe ever on this show. Like the the, <laughs> Bru- the Bruno Schultz story in particular. Like, do you have, I mean, it seems like you would just based on the imaginative quality of your work and the sort of surreal mode that you work in. But do you have, um, like spiritually speaking, like a belief that there might be some actual connectivity between uh, him and you, uh, like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't mean to get too woo woo, but do no, you have... I love that you asked. I love that you asked that. I, I actually really love that you asked that. I, you know, it's something that like flickers around like the edges of my, of my mind. Like, what if, like, I wonder, maybe I was like a, a mouse or something that lived in Br- Bruno Schultz's house in a past life. Like, that's the most I can come up with. But, I do. Um, I love that you asked that. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I want to believe like, you know, in, I think voices maybe holding each other, um, or carrying, uh, carrying little pieces of each other into the, into a kind of future. And if, you know, I mean, and that's the thing that I always think about, like, with writing, like, what's your, what's your goal? You know, like, what do you want? You want the, like, 
the fame and the fortune and the like, you know, the lights and the um, and and the the furs and the diamonds or like, do you just and I've never thought about anything like that. Like all I've ever. That's all I want. <laughs> I've I've you know, I I always think like there's this this um I've always had this desire that or this hope at least that um you know that there's like this one word that like you carry forward like into some kind of future and then like that other word takes on like the shape of another word and another word and another word and and to be part of that to me um feels like really incredibly magical um and I think if I didn't have that and I didn't have that feeling um I feel just total despair (laughs) um you know, because like, if you want to, I, I think writing is probably the wrong way to go if like you want to be, you know, if you want the, the lights, the, sh- the shiny, the shiny objects, but, um, but I don't really, but, and, but the other thing is like, I, I would absolutely like have no idea what I would do if I if I wasn't a writer. Like I would want to work in the post office probably, but now it looks like the post office isn't doing so well. But I like the idea of like stamping packages. That would be my my other my other career. <laughs> stamping packages. <laughs> yeah, like just I like pet little packages, like mailing them. That is yeah, that is sort of nice. That's like a nice like utilitarian. Like you're doing something. I kind of felt that way about delivering pizzas. Like this is like people like to get packages. People like to get pizzas, you know, it's yeah. like there's worse things you could do with your time. Totally. Yeah. When did you deliver pizzas? College. Yeah. You know, um, and I've always, I was just, uh, I was just talking to an author who wrote a book called pizza girl, <laughs> uh, Jean Kyung Frazier, not too long ago. We were talking about our shared love of pizza delivery, like the, <laughs> this, the, the, the joy of it. It's a good job. Yeah. Yeah. I remember like at, um, years ago I went to bread loaf and, but I was an, as a waiter and, um, my favorite part of bread loaf was just waiting the ta- waiting tables because you knew that, like, I remember just wiping down the table at the end and being like, it's finished. Like, I don't have to worry about it as opposed to all this writing that will never be finished. You know, like I just, I loved just the, just the, the wiping the table down part. Um, a lot of people would not agree with me on that. And I think they've done away with the waiters at Breadloaf. Did you wait on any famous writers? Um, well, Dean Young had been my um, pr- had been my teacher um, at Iowa, and I re- I um, and I did spill. Um, well, actually, he spilled the creamer like all over the floor, um, but um, I ended up having to clean it up. So that wasn't a great moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's see. I loved I loved working with Dean Young. I just didn't like the creamer part. Um, 
did I wait? Well, Bridget Pajean Kelly was there at the time. Um, who else? No, I don't think I, I didn't really. I mostly just waited on like other other um, up and coming writers. <laughs> and, you know, this is kind of like a, this is a random related question. But for somebody who grew up in Manhattan, do you have like memories of ever seeing anybody notable on the streets of Manhattan in your youth as you're like moving around or when you were at Barnard? Well, so my dad lived around the corner from Tower Books. Um, so there was like Tower Records and then there was Tower Books, um, both of which are, are no longer. And um, Patty Smith would be there all the time. And I was always, I mean. Oh, in Greenwich uh, Village. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, Patty Smith, like in terms of influence, like, oh, God, I love Patty Smith so much. Um and I, I just I love her now even more than like I love her in her 20s and 30s. Like I love her as like this um, older woman writing these like beautiful memoirs. I just I think she's um, she's definitely and I would see her. I would see her all the time um, just shopping for books Um yeah, I saw her in New York. I mean, I've been to New York so little, but I did see her in the village. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit, that's Patty Smith. It was just like, you know, in passing, she was just cruising around. I think because she's like, she's sort of like a regular person who is incredibly famous, who is also a regular person. And a true artist. Like I read, a true uh, artist, yeah. I read Just Kids and it's like, it almost feels like reading... I mean, it is. It's reading something in another time, but it almost feels like another planet. You know, this idea of like being able to move to New York and scrape by, and like, what a what an artist life! Like, what an art life she's she's led. Yeah, you know, and that was the thing that I was saying before, like about Athens, Georgia. Like, there is something. I mean, you can't do that in New York, and you, you just can't do. I mean, I guess you can, maybe you can, but I don't know a lot of people who can. But there is something about Athens at times that like reminds me of what maybe like the East Village had once been. Um, and there is that sense of like, I don't know, there's there's that space that that space to create that feels very different from from most other places I've ever lived in. Well, that's interesting to hear because I'm always wondering, like, well, okay, so we, we've all heard, like, sort of ad nauseum that New York is over, you know? Even Patti Smith says, like, mm -hmm. I want to say somebody interviewed her, or she was doing, like, a Q&A, and they were like, what would you say to young artists, you know, who are in New York and struggling? She's like, get out, or, like, don't come. Like, it's, it's well, over. I heard her, yeah. And, uh, but I'm always like, okay, so, like, people, like, you know, the young artists are eventually going to find a new place and make it new somewhere, and I feel like by the time I hear about it or by the time anybody hears about it, it's already sort of over. But I'm always wondering, like, where are they right now? What, what, like, what's the place right now where the living standard is good enough, but the rent is cheap and it's sort of a groovy little community and somehow the people come together and interesting stuff happens? You know, like, where's the scene? I have to say there's something about Athens that has, I mean, I've, I've, I've definitely said to people like, don't uh, now, you know, now I'm spilling the beans, but like there, it, it does feel like a little secret, you know, like this, this place that, um, 
allows you to be that. I mean, the other side of that also, though, is that there's a little bit of like a Peter Pan complex situation that can, you know, set in um, that I don't I don't know. Um, you know, I don't know if that's super, like super desirable. Um, what you mean, like like the like the forty five year old guy who's like still going to clubs and <laughs> right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Come on, you can be young at heart. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's just I, and like God bless him. I just I don't want to be that guy. Right? Yeah. No, I couldn't. I like I physically couldn't. Um, uh, I, I sort of, I sort of live in awe. I live in awe of people. Like, I have a friend like that who, like, lives in Brooklyn and can still, like, still goes out and like really parties and like lives this kind of bohemian existence. And I'm like, how are you doing this? Like, I, I'm like cut myself down to like a one drink minimum at this <laughs> this stage of my life. I can't, not because I don't necessarily have like the. uh the desire, but just like I, my physically, my body, I can't do it. I get too hungover and sleepy. I know I'm the same. I'm, I'm the same way. Like I can have like half of a drink, but I think even in my twenties, I felt more like a 95 year old than a 20 year old. I get that vibe. <laughs> I think I might have some of that too. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. Like I've always been, yeah, I, I um I had a really 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 close relationship with my grandmother and um I used to just like all I wanted was just to you know to just sit in my grandmother's kitchen and just like talk to her until like I would I would go visit her in the morning um and this was like through college and I would go visit her in the morning and I remember like the sun you know, would like slowly, it would start off really bright. And then just like slowly, it would get like, um, you know, dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And then we would just be like talking in the pitch black, just like talking, 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 talking. Um, so yeah, those were some, and this of, was, a, yeah. Cause we were supposed to, we were supposed to do this in person months and months ago before, before the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and then the day that you landed in Los Angeles, didn't you say that yes. you, I think you emailed me or texted me and said that your grandmother had gotten very ill or had passed away. Is this the same grandmother? Yeah. So what happened was I was, um, I was, my brother lives in LA and I was visiting my brother. I was, I was visiting my brother and I went to visit my grandmother, um, who was not doing well. And then my husband brought um, our boys to LA and then I came and met them in LA after being with my grandmother and, and um, I landed and my grandmother basically, I think my grandmother died like three hours later. And so my brother and I got back on, and, and that was the day I was supposed to come. Yeah. And then my brother and I got back onto got onto a plane and just went straight back, back to New York. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. She was my person. So. Well, my condolences. Yeah. I mean, she's, I, I've gone, I think it was about two years ago. Um, and, uh, I'll say though, I mean, she was, 
94 and she like really had this like absolutely beautiful life and she died in her bed and surrounded you know she was with my father and my stepmother and um she like she did everything like she was ready to die you know like she she did everything she wanted to do and um I don't know like I've never known anyone who was so I think at peace with her life and dying um so um and she's I feel her really intensely all the time these days so it's it's um and I'm almost like relieved she doesn't have to like live through this because I think of all these people you know like all these older people who's like family can't come and visit them and oh god I don't know right yeah it's terrible like I that's the thing there are so many costs to the ineptitude and the sadism of the administration and the whole response to this that don't necessarily get tabulated uh, as uh, as regularly or um, as prominently as they should, but they're they're they are voluminous, you know, and it's causing real suffering for people. Um, not just people getting sick and dying, but people being cut off socially, people not being able to see their grandchildren in their golden years. You know, that's like valuable time to lose, and I that makes me so pissed. I know. See, that's the thing. Like, I'm just thinking of like the older people and the kids, you know, like right now in terms of like, who's really going to, I mean, I, I really do wonder. Yeah. Like even for my parents, you know, like how long is this going to go on for? Like how long will they, um, you know, lose out on, you know, traveling? Yeah. Visiting the grandchildren. Um, and then I do wonder like what, this generation, like all these little kids, I mean, they're going to be different. I, and I don't know, I don't know how or, or, or what the, I mean, maybe the, the hope is they're just more empathetic people, but, um, I don't know. Like, I guess, um, I've been, I've been wrestling lately in like really broad brushstroke kind of simple ways with people who, for whatever reason, place a primary level of importance on individual liberty and individualism versus collective responsibility. Mm -hmm. Like, this is a deep area of fascination for me, and I think COVID brings it out. I, I like to joke with people that the whole mask thing is in some ways kind of convenient because it lets you know like who who are the people who are really just like thinking of the world and conceiving of reality from a very limited perspective um it's like a branding exercise in selfishness or something you know i don't know i, I live in los angeles where there's this high population density and you know you have an i think an added level of responsibility it would be similar in manhattan yeah um but i i guess i, I and i know some very good people like friends of mine who really do view the world through the lens of 
the individual primarily like that's the deepest reality to them is like their individual freedom and their individual interests uh and i totally see it the other way <laughs> and so when you talk about this generation of kids and how it might affect them more like i think we can have good faith arguments on policy differences i don't think there's one political party or one person or one ideology that um you know owns the truth or has the the best ideas every single time so i think debate is is healthy and and correct but where i hope we can eventually reach some consensus is on the fact that we're all in this together and that individual liberty really matters it's very important to me like i don't want to mess with anybody's liberty mm-hmm. and i i don't want anybody to mess with mine mm-hmm. but the deeper reality is that we're all in this together mm-hmm. and that's all that's the only that's the only argument i sometimes want to win is just to get people to to realize like no like you know like we really are all connected like the dr bronner's magic soap like <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Where it's like all one. That's it. Like, yeah, yeah, hun, yeah. That's the soap we use. <laughs> there I, you go. Yeah, I. Um, I mean, if this doesn't teach us that we're all breathing the same air, I mean, literally <laughs> breathing the same air, then I don't. Nothing will. I and and I feel you. Like you know, you can't separate little pockets of air for, 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 for yourself. Um, and I do, I do really, I do really feel you. And I do wonder, like, you know, when you think about the whole idea, I think of, um, freedom, you know, like is just the word itself, it almost like has taken on this strange, like, um, like, like, uh, like a kind of almost like poisonous tint to it these days, you know, like, um, um, like it's, it's being used as a kind of, um, it feels toxic almost. I feel like it, you know, it, it, I think people are taking it to mean like freedom from responsibility, which is a perversion of the idea of freedom to me. I think that's right. where you're seeing, like when you're seeing these people, you know, having meltdowns because somebody at Walmart is asking them to wear a mask, you know, that's not, <laughs> that's not the, the, uh, the ideal of freedom and individual liberty in its truest sense, you know, or at least it's, mm-hmm it's a warped view of it and it's completely divorced from any sense of collective responsibility, which, you know, brings me back to where I started. But, um, I just think people have this weird view these days of what it means to be free. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, freedom is only determined by like the id part of us or something, right? Like that it's, it's like completely about like pleasure um and is completely like disconnected from like the ego or the super ego it's just like all like just you know um and that's not how we can like move as a as a human race um i don't i don't think or or if we do move that way it's going to be like really really bloody um 
I agree. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, not to put too much pressure on you, but how do you see all this playing out? Like I used to ask this question earlier in the administration where I would say, how's this going to end? And now we're about 90 days out from the election and, you know, the numbers are not good for Trump, but of course I think there's all sorts of dirty tricks to come and Mm -hmm. it's very hard. It's very difficult to predict how things are going to go, but I'm going to ask you to predict how things are going to (laughs) go. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, the reality is that, you know, we're the, the leader of, of the free world is a pathological liar. So like, you know, we had like, so everything is just completely skewed. Um, I think, I think, um, but I also feel like I have to be hopeful. Like I just have to be, I have to be hopeful. I think that a lot of, um, institutions like that we have always relied on or thought that we couldn't like live without in 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 a particular way are going to be rethought I think there I do think that there's going to be like a lot of rewriting you know I think I think um I think education's gonna end up being really that there's going to be some I I I I feel like a, a dramatic shift coming on um and I don't know what that's going to look like. But I think, you know, I've always thought of myself as a, as a pretty, um, as a parent who is pretty connected to like what my kids are learning day to day. And, um, the homes, the whole homeschooling setup has really made me rethink like, um, how, how my kids, learn and what they're learning for and like what school even really is. I mean, and I know that's a very privileged position. Um, uh, but, and I think universities, I think there's going to be a shift. I think a lot more things are going to be remote done remotely. Like my brother, who's a lawyer was saying like, I mean, his work has completely not changed other than the fact that like he does everything everything online and he's like the amount of money we save you know just by being able to um that there there was a lot of face-to-face that was not necessary even though I think um and now I'm blathering on but I I don't know I mean I think so much is going to be um, reimagined and I'm, and I'm hopeful that it's, um, a kind of positive reimagining. Um, I did, I, I did have this, this experience, like when this all started where I was very struck by the fact that I do do a lot of things throughout the day. Um, that I was very relieved to not have to do anymore. <laughs> you know, that there was this, and, and, and I started thinking like, 
and not necessary. I mean, not essential things at all, like things where I felt like I was expected to do this thing. And as a result, did this thing and showed my face in this particular way and said these things in this way, because this is how things have always gone. Um, that I think I would like to hold on to as being over. Um, I think there are a lot of people who feel that way. There are certain aspects of this that are positive, like a, mm -hmm. like a, a culling kind of uh, process and also maybe a reprioritizing or a rethinking of one's priorities. Uh, like I was saying the other day, maybe on the show, um, even something as silly and simple as like giving myself haircuts. I was like, why have I not been doing this the whole time? Yeah. I've been spending like hundreds of dollars a year on haircuts or whatever it comes out to. And I'm like, I don't need to do that. I could do this. Like I didn't even think about it. You know, you just kind of go through your life and getting coffee from uh, the coffee shop. And there've been all these different little parts of life that have sort of peeled away and it doesn't even matter. Yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah. And, um, I agree. I agree with that. And, um, but I also like my person, I'm a, I am a total introvert. I mean, like I, um, you know, if not, you know, for really like, and my husband is too, like I turned to my husband and I was like, what do you miss? Like, do you miss any, like, what do you miss? And he's like, I don't miss anything. And I was like, that, <laughs> and now I've just told everybody this, but like a bit, but, um, but, um, he, yeah, I, I kind of, um, I get it. I mean, there are a lot, I miss the library desperately. I miss going into bookstores desperately. Um, and I miss like just easily traveling to see my family, um, and friends. Um, that's not nothing. That's I mean, not, you know, that's every, not everything. Yeah. Everybody gets to miss different things, but I do think that introverted people, and I count myself, um, I'm, I, I can be a little bit of both, but I definitely lean more introvert. And I think that for people like us, quarantine is an easier fit. Yes, like the right where the the the, in, the introverts are are, are going to you know win this this plague. Um, yeah. So are you working on any writing? I mean, do you have time in the midst of homeschooling and all that, you know, the, the new situation entails? Like, are you working on another book? Yeah. So um, right now I'm um, I have the monthly column. So I've been working on that and it's going to be a book. Um, so I had sold it in June. Um, so so happily so all the essays um that have been appearing in the paris review on um fairy tales and motherhood um those are all going to be collected into a book so i have three um two more two more months with the paris review and then i'm going to spend a few more months writing more essays to add to the book um, and then I've also been working on some stories, um, but, but the essays keep me pretty busy. Um, uh, I'm, I'm right. I'm definitely writing at a faster pace than I actually have, um, that uh, faster than I can actually write. So, 
Um, I'm usually pretty slow, um, but this, this has been pushing me. So, yeah. And is that you on the cover of Wild Milk? Like the clown nose? I'm looking at you on no. Skype, too. Oh, that's funny. No, no. It's, um, it's a painting. I actually found um, the, the artist um, on Instagram, and she's just she's wonderful. Um, her name is Lee Shan Chung. And I had, I don't even know how I found her on Instagram, but she does like all these paintings of um, uh, a lot of like crying women. And then there was this one, excuse me. And I thought, oh, I love her. Like I love her sad eyes and her, and her clown's nose. And then when I sent the art to Danielle Dutton at Dorothy, she was like, this is the cover, like 100%. This is the cover. And it was really cool, because the artist is like a younger artist. And, you know, she was really excited about, you know, having her pa- her painting as as a book cover. So it all worked out really, really well. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, it's been such a joy to talk to you. This has been fun in the midst of uh, the pandemic. And Congratulations to you on Wild Milk. Congratulations on the new book and the column at the Paris Review. And uh, best to you and yours in Athens, GA. Thank you, Brad, so much. It was amazing talking to you. Thank you. And be safe and sound. All right, guys, that's Sabrina Ora Mark. And uh, I will agree to being safe, but I will not agree to be sound. I draw the line there. Sabrina's uh, story collection is called Wild Milk. It's available from the Dorothy Project. You can find Sabrina online at sabrinaoramark.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Oramark. The book, one more time, is called Wild Milk. It's a story collection by Sabrina Oramark. Go get your copy right now. The Other People Podcast is offered freely. All episodes, every single one of them, is available to you for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you like the show and you can support the show, do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to get some other people gear, if you want a t-shirt or a hoodie or even a tank top, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Just look over in the left sidebar. You'll see a little picture of a t-shirt. Click on that. You'll get some apparel. It will be a rewarding uh, consumer experience. If you want to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. The Other People podcast has its own official app. It's the Other People with Brad Listy app. It, too, is free. Go get the app. You can follow the show on Twitter at OtherPPL or on Instagram at OtherPPL.podcast. I don't run those accounts, but my uh, social media director, Joseph Grantham, has it all under control. Why don't you send some photos of where you're listening from? Use the, use the hashtag where I'm listening. I'm pretty sure next time on the show it's going to be Nick Flynn. Things could change. Everything's fluid right now. It's August. It's the dog days of summer. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Who did Biden pick as his vice president? 
Should I make a prediction? I can't predict. It's hard to say. Why do I feel so stressed out about this? When is it going to end? I just want it to be over. I think we all feel that way. Okay.